professional golfer, PhD in sports psychology, author or co-author of 126 scientific journal articles, and consultant to amateur and professional golfers. Sound like someone you can learn from? In this episode of the Fit for Golf podcast, I am joined by Dr. Mark Campbell. Mark is a former professional golfer and highly decorated amateur. He has a PhD in sports psychology and is particularly interested in studying elite performers. He now uses his in-depth education and experience to help golfers improve their play. In this episode, we look back at Mark's amateur and pro career, how he combined his sports psychology education with elite golf, and how he now helps golfers. Mark is a tremendous resource and a true expert in his field. I'm sure you will learn from him, and I can't wait to hear your feedback. Did you know there is a Fit for Golf app loaded with training material? It is the only golf fitness resource you will ever need and is currently being used by six PGA Tour players, two European Tour players, and thousands of amateurs all over the world. Check it out on www.fitforgolf.blog and use the code FFGTRIAL to get a one-month trial for just $6. You will not find it in the App Store. You must go to my website. Now to Dr. Mark Campbell. Dr. Mark Campbell, thank you very much for joining me on the Fit for Golf podcast. I am very happy to have you. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Good to be here. Can you give the listeners just a little bit of an intro of where you are now and what exactly you're you're up to currently with your your work? Uh, Sure, yeah, will do. so I'm a lecturer in the Department of Physical Education and Sports Sciences here in the University of Limerick in Ireland. Um, I'm here 10 years now, would you believe? So quite a long time. Before that, um, I would have played professional golf for five years on mini tours around Europe. And before that, I would have played 10 years kind of international you know, level, level golf representing Ireland at various age levels. Um, since then, obviously my background is in, um, I did a PhD in psychology, uh, sports psychology. I was looking at, um, kind of golf related topics. And, uh, I suppose for the last, um, eight years, I've been working with, uh, Irish golfers, mainly the Leinster, the Leinster golf team, one of the big regions here in Ireland. And, uh, yeah, I've been working with them every year with their underage teams, the under 14s right through to the men's team. So I've really enjoyed that and worked with some, uh, Irish pros as well down the years, so it's it's been uh, it's, it's it's interesting combining academia with um, you know applied psychology work. Best Brilliant. of both worlds. So, yeah, that's great. So, Mark, you were one of my lecturers in UL two thousand and ten, two thousand and fourteen. At the time, if I'd have known how cool your golf background was, I probably would have listened a little bit more intently to <laughs> classes. Not that they weren't interesting anyway, but. Um, it was only in recent years I actually learned a little bit more about uh, exactly how good you'd been at golf, to be honest. Um, can you dig a little bit more into exactly kind of how your golf career spanned? Because I read a couple of articles and I think you had um, essentially like a very interesting sort of progression in terms of what you did on the amateur circuit and then sort of how you trade to develop as a professional. So could you just go a little bit more into detail in terms of the progression through maybe, you know, junior golf, elite amateur golf, and then what exactly you tried to do to sort of get onto some of the main tours and some of the tours that you did play on? Yeah, sure. No problem. Um, yeah, so I grew up in in, um, in Dublin, obviously, in, in Ireland, and I, I played golf in Stackstown, which was uh, up in the Dublin mountains there, I suppose. Some of your listeners might be familiar with Stackstown because it's um, Audrey Harrington's home club. So Podrick would have grown up across the road from me, actually, just on Ballyrone Road there in Rathfarnham. And um, he was a good bit older than me, but he was always on the practice ground growing up. And he was making Walker Cups when I was sort of, you know, 12, 13 years of age. So um, he was a great person to have around the club at the time because it just, you know, you could see the standard that was being set and how good he was. And um, I think there was maybe 100 juniors would play every Friday. And, you know, it was a nice competitive 
scene and it was great and uh, myself and another guy Michael McDermott would have uh, come through at the same time and we would have been trying to you know beat the pants off each other growing up so I would have made um, I would have won the Weetabix it was a golf foundation uh, competition when I was 14 so it was the Irish under 15 championship basically before the Irish under 15s were brought in Um, I would have won the Irish boys then a couple of years later um so I would have made Irish teams. I think the first Irish team I was on was 95. Leinster team was the regional team to play the interprovincials. So, um, yeah, it was it was an interesting junior career, I suppose. I would have played... Uh, you were good Brit- early then, so like you kind of yeah. were, were at the, the national level from your very early teenage years. Yeah, so from about 14, 15, you know, I, I won the Irish boys when I was 16. So the Irish under 16s, the under 17s, the under 18s, which would have been not too many people would have won, you know, the under 18 event when they were that age. So, yeah, I was I was quite good from an early age. And I made the uh, the British and Irish under 18 team then, which is the, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing you can make at that time. So I would have played I would have played on that and uh would have played on that with Justin Rose and we would have played against Sergio Garcia. So this is kind wow. of the age. I'm giving away my age now, Mike, you know. They're still doing okay though, yeah. That's all right. They're still doing, <laughs> they're still doing all right, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so I was pretty decent from an early age. And, um, yeah, so when I was when I was uh, 18, I won the South of Ireland then. So that was that's a big championship here in, um, in Ireland. There's four regional championships and then the Irish events. And uh, I would have been the youngest ever winner at the time of that. That's the oldest championship in Ireland, come back to the late 1800s. So that was a, a big achievement for me. And I would have made the Irish men's team then as a result. So I would have been, at the time, the youngest on it. Because at the time, you know, 1999, it was kind of, there was a lot of veterans on that team at then, you know, the Irish golf teams tended to be the, you know, guys would have been on it for a long time. Garth Majimsis and Adrian Morrows and Eddie Powers of this world. So it was myself and Michael Hoey had made the team that year. So we were kind of the two uh, the two young guns. And then Graham McDowell would have made it the following year. And, you know, I think it just got very younger. The team profile turned very young very quickly. There was a whole host of really, really good golfers came through around then. Yeah, so at 18 then, I suppose you're probably finishing up secondary school. Was there a decision to go to the US for college for a scholarship or try and turn professional or was staying in Ireland and studying kind of always the plan and staying amateur? Yeah, so the plan was, uh, obviously I was growing up at Harrington and he was, uh, you know, he would have been giving me a lot of advice on his father and he, he didn't go to the States on scholarship and he would have seen, I suppose, a lot of Irish guys would have gone over and some really make it, you know, the, the McDowell's of this world, but uh, others don't, they fall away and they, you know, they, they don't just quite don't fit to it. So he would have been very actively discouraging me from going on a golf scholarship because I was really, really considering it there for a while. But um, UCD at the time were doing golf scholarships. They were trying to get a team together. So UCD is the university in Dublin. And I just fancied that because I could live at home and I could play golf and nothing much changed. And I went on a golf scholarship with, uh, we had a good team there. We were playing in the uh, the club events around Ireland. And that was the decision I made. But yeah, I suppose looking back, I think I would have loved to have tried the um, the golf scholarship to the States thing. I know like, so Gray McDowell would have started in um, Queen's University the same year I started in UCD in Belfast and uh, after a year he said you know feck it I'm out of here I'm going to try the states you know and try and play a little more and, and and get that experience and he loved it and and took off from there so you know some people it really works out but I do think uh, I'm not sure how what I'd advise people but I'd advise them to really do their homework get over there if they're serious about it have a look at the uh, you know the universities that they they're thinking of going to and and really really check it out if they want to play a lot of golf and a lot of high level collegiate golf you know, I don't think there's anywhere better than, you know, NCAA Division One kind of college, you know. Yeah, it's so competitive now. Like when you, you know, look at the standard of player who are even leaving college early after excelling at the D1 level, they've been, you know, competing on tour and winning right away. I know they don't all work out like that, but there's been probably enough cases over the last few years to show that it's a distinct possibility if you're the best, you know, 10 players at D1 golf you're probably ready to go on the PGA Tour. Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know, what it does is it just gets you playing every week. 
and you you play so many events and everything is card in your hand, everything's stroke play. You know, at the time in Ireland, that's still a little bit like this. You had a lot of championship events, but they were match play or they were stroke play qualifying into match play. So it almost felt like two events in one. You just had to kind of make the cut to get into the match play and then you just played matches against other people, which was fantastic experience, but it was very much amateur golf, whereas I think collegiate golf in the States is very kind of just Reckon under that. The pros. Exactly. It's just under that pro level, you know. So you then, what year did you start in UCD and did you say again? Um, 99. 99. And then in 2004, you won the East of Ireland. That would suggest that you progressed through college. Do you feel like you improved during your time in UCD? Um, I did, yeah. I suppose after I won the South in 99, I made that Irish team that year. And and then I suppose it would have taken a, a couple of years then to kind of get going again you know like I didn't win a championship until uh, 2004 but I led a couple in 2003 I came pretty close and um, I would have won the order of merit then uh, 2004 tied for the order of merit with Brian McElhenney um, so I was studying I was doing psychology I had started a master's I then got a PhD scholarship and uh, I just thought you know this is kind of dream golf territory for me I could play a lot of golf and I could study and uh combine kind of both passions I didn't really have any thoughts about turning pro I did like the idea of of uh, elite amateur golf and you know trips and playing championships and it was a pretty packed schedule like during the summer so you know that was my thoughts were, were around that at the time I wasn't thinking you know I, I want to be a pro golfer this is where I'm going when did sports psychology become something you were interested in how did that kind of fit in with your competitive golf was it as you were playing competitive golf you saw well like there's definitely scope to learn about you know what's happening I suppose inside the mind in simple terms here or was it was it even before you know before you got real serious in the golf or how did that come about yeah it's kind of a twin track really Mike I think when I was in school um secondary school I would have had a few uh, friends who would have struggled with mental health issues you know and I thought psychology was fascinating because you could you could help people and you know clinical psychology seemed to be a good career and there was lots of you know it's a well-paid job it's a nice profession so initially I would have thought about going into the more counseling or clinical psychology from school just from experiences with you know friends in school and, and things like that but um, at the same time I was starting to to be selected on teams and to get a lot of, you know, higher level coaching. And there was a lot of decent coaching practices being brought in then. And I started to see that there was a, a big mental side to kind of elite performance in golf. And, uh, you know, as I started studying psychology, then there was Aidan Moore and Professor Aidan Moore in UCD would have been um, a cognitive psychology lecturer, but he was mad about sport and it was basically sports psychology lectures. And um, I just absolutely love them from day one and uh it just completely changed my my focus from wanting to maybe do clinical psychology to help people it was like you know sports psychology or performance psychology was really uh really what i what i took a, a liking to just because i thought it might help myself and i just thought it was it was fascinating to kind of build someone up you know to kind of take what you have and try and improve that further rather than you know help someone who has kind of fallen below a certain level of functioning or whatever it might be you know were you nearly then for a while during your sick uh very competitive amateur stages working as your own sports psychologist nearly were you trying to take the things you were learning and apply them to yourself yeah yeah i have to say i was yeah i was a bit um yeah, I was a bit kind of, I was, I was very interested in it and I was kind of interested in, in seeing, you know, it's kind of an, a, like a natural lab almost, you know, like yeah. you'll, you'll take a tournament, you'll try something or you'll try a particular mindset or attitude or you'll reflect on it and you'll try things out. Uh, I think it was, it was a very natural thing to do because like growing up with, with Podrick again, like he was such a, he was such an experimental kind of a scientifically minded person that he was always, you know, using gadgets and talking about the mental side of the game. And, you know, he was quite an extreme person, you know, he'd do something like all out for a number of weeks and just growing up that had that effect on me as well. I just thought, you know, I'm going to try this and I'm going to really keep going with it until I see improvements or until I decide that it's just not working and it's a bit crap and I'll move on to the next thing. 
I appreciate it's probably something that's hard to put your finger on, but was there any kind of epiphany moments you had in terms of like mental, say, strategies or things that you discovered about yourself that you were like, wow, this is something where I've really been lacking. You know, I, I really need to change, you know, this element of my approach. Um, I, there's two things that spring to mind there, Mike. One was I played in the UK. It was my first big event, big trip. I would have been maybe 15 uh, years of age. I played in a kind of a British and Irish finals um, and I would have been leading going into the last day uh, against a lot of, you know, really top UK young golfers. And uh, I was just, I was struck by how um, temperamental some of them were and how they were really like losing the plot, really hot, you know, banging clubs and, and cursing and just like really not in control of themselves. And I suppose what happened that day was I kind of let it affect me, you know, people like, you know, getting angry and losing the rag that kind of affected my performance. And afterwards I was just so disappointed that I let, you know, someone else kind of get in and, and kind of bother me that I just thought I need to be better. I need to be more in control of what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, you know, get into my own little bubble and just do my thing. Um, and, and so that would have been at 16, you know, but then I suppose after having made the Irish men's team in 99, uh, I struggled to get back on it the next year. I had that kind of second season after the big win, the big high of the year before. I struggled to kind of reach those those kind of higher levels of performance. So this would have been my second year in UCD. Or my, I couldn't get to the levels of performance I was the year before. The year before, I was I felt like I was challenging in most events. And it was all new territory to me. But I was, you know, playing guys I thought were much better than me and I was really holding my own. Whereas the next year, I just thought I was going to go out and really, you know, up my game again. And I didn't. I struggled with that. And I think a lot of that was mental. You know, it was expectations on myself. It was pressure. Uh, it was, you know, controlling my emotions. It was all those kind of mental sides of the game which were, were lacking, you know. And I suppose when I, halfway through the season or two-thirds of the way through the season, I kind of had to have a sit down myself and go back to the drawing board a little bit and, and start that kind of process of, okay, I think, you know, I think the mental side of golf is important. You know, I, everything went my way the year before. I think now I need, a, I need more in the, in the toolkit than just, you know, swing confidence or, you know, playing well when I'm feeling good about my game, but I need, I need more than that. So that was, that was the second kind of big one for me about how, you know, the psychology of golf, you know, it, was was so much more than just you know feeling confident when you get on the first tee or on the 18th green or whatever yeah i think that's a really good point like something that i was going to ask you about anyway and you almost kind of nicely brought it up there is that like we all have sort of say our own ceiling in terms of our our golf potential based on our current skill you know whether you're an an 18 handicap or a, a plus handicap we kind of all know roughly like what our good golf is but what's really interesting is, you know, how some players seem to do an extremely good job of staying closer to that good golf more often, whereas other players, you know, are, are miles away from it. They fluctuate up and down so much. Do you think that that can be largely due to these types of things that you're talking about, like emotional control, being able to sort of stay in your own bubble and essentially just concentrate on how you play golf, not getting distracted by other things? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a big part of it. Um, I also think, you know, challenging yourself to be better, you know, or even this idea of trying to build a score, you know, like the, the, the big thing I find, you know, looking back now is we never really learn how to to play golf for scoring purposes wise. Golf is always broken down into, you know, the component parts and we, we tend to practice them like crazy, but we never really practice scoring you know practice building a score keeping a score maintaining a score getting a score back like that's such an important part of golf performance is that score building or score maintaining and people just don't have that you know if it's going well for them they think great you know a lot of golfers will have get off to a great start and then just settle into a you know i'm a 72 kind of a guy i'm gonna just relax now for a few minutes you know it's, it's so rare those days when you're swing confidence and your kind of mental confidence is in that you know i think it's a real skill that you can develop to just try and 
drive on when you are hitting the ball great when you're when you've made three or four birdies already to just see go for that ride you know how many more birdies can i make how good can i get can i shoot the lowest score i've ever shot today maybe today is the day you know to really kind of push themselves on to build that challenge into their their play i think a lot of people will just settle back and they'll start thinking about the finish line you know you're thinking can really impact your golf performance a lot of the time because a lot of the time you just want to jump ahead and think I'm going to win I'm going to get cut I'm going to, I'm, I'm having a terrible day God, you know what am I going to do next or staying in that moment and kind of really relishing building a score I think is a is a key part to it you know yeah I think that's a really good point like the it's something that I'm always curious of because just from my work, I know so many golf instructors and get to talk to so many golfers. Something that's popping up, it's probably been around maybe forever, I'm sure, but it's definitely becoming more mainstream now is some of the stuff you were talking about there in terms of your your practice, your training, trying to get more comfortable in different scoring scenarios as opposed to just you know working on the, the three-yard draw with your seven iron on the range. And we see sort of strategies that some coaches uh, utilize things like getting players to play up a couple of tee boxes to get them used to, you know, hopefully shooting scores that are much lower than they usually do. Just to have that is not a, a new mental challenge if they do it, you know, on the course in a, in around the counts and also setting up, you know, some scenarios where they bring them to the 15th or 16th hole of a, of a course that they're going to play in competition and they tell them, you know, right, you need to be whatever, two under from here for the last four holes or, or you're leading and you, you need to shoot even par to, to close it out. You can sort of straight away, you know, almost feel without even doing it, how that would change where your mind is going to be compared to when you're on the range thinking like that ball faded 15 yards, it was supposed to draw five. Yeah, absolutely. And another one that I would recommend sometimes to, uh, to, to guys is to play their best ball, you know, to do nine holes and to, to take their best ball of seconds that hit two shots off the, off the first tee and pick their best one, uh, hit two approach shots, pick their best one, hit two putts, pick their best one and, and really see can they shoot six, seven, eight under for nine holes. You know, I think there's, there's nothing better for your, for your confidence than, than building a score like that and really enjoying that 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 idea of you know hitting it down the middle of the first and then going you know what I can do better than that I can go a little tighter to the right there and I can go a little further up the right and get myself a better angle in and you're almost just narrowing everything down then you know rather than accepting a relatively decent mediocre shot you're always trying to just better better it better yourself you know so I, I recommend that it's the typical Irish coaches I've come across down the years some of them will say play your worst ball you know to give yourself a reality check and and see how you're doing and you know shoot four or five over but i just think you know i think confidence is such a big thing like in the week leading up to an event i think there's nothing better than shooting low scores even if it is with the help of a, a second serve or a second yeah. ball you know i think I, th I think it's a fantastic thing to do and i recommend it to a lot of the guys i work with just to mix it up into their practice you know get out there and even better again is to see can they you know look at the conditions that you go to on the course that day you know if, if you're if it's your home club you know you'll be very familiar if the weather's decent like in ireland it's quite variable so you might say look under the conditions of today's weather with the greens being the way they are i think i could do four under four nine holes here so you set that target in your mind and you you get onto the ninth tee and you're three under you're you're going all for you've got pressure then you've got a little yeah. bit of clutch you've got a little bit of that clutch kind of mind state going up the last where it matters you got a you got a birdie to hit your target or you got a birdie to to better it and then the next day you go back you know you're thinking yeah I did four under here the last day I, I'm going to do five today you know and I, I just think that's a lovely that's a lovely way to to approach a game like that you know that you have a target in your in your head that you're working towards that target and off you go. Yeah, maybe um, what a good compromise might be for working on your ability to go really low, but also your ability to hold it together when things aren't going so well is to keep, you know, personal records for your best ball scramble and your worst ball scramble. Do the two of them and see if you can get your, your personal bests for both of them to improve. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think it's about I think it's about timing as well. Like, I think you know, like the timing of doing best ball or second serve is probably in the lead up to an event where you're yeah. trying to just get that really good vibrations, good feel going about, you know, heading into the event. And then maybe after it might be a good time to do the, to do the worst ball side of it as well. But to, you know, I think for me, I think you need to probably weight it a little, a little heavier for better, better ball than worse ball. So okay. maybe, you know, of, of 10 rounds you do of better ball golf, I think six or seven of them should be, best ball and uh, three or four of them should be should be worst ball because they the worst ball one can kind of beat you up and if you're not if you're not playing well you'll really really struggle yeah. you know <laughs> yeah 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 because it, it's like that jp mcmanus tiger woods bet from years ago was the exact same thing jp laid some sizable bet with tiger about you know he had to play his worst ball he had to hit two shots so he'd be holing out for birdie from 20 feet and it'd be like okay well, off you go again yeah yeah <laughs> you know yeah. He obviously lost the bet because it's a it's a hell of a tough game. Yeah, Tiger lost this bet to JP. Is that right? Oh, he did. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. hadn't worst heard that. Worst ball, ball bet. Yeah, yeah. Tiger worst ball versus JP best ball. Yeah. Oh yeah, I can see how that changes things quickly. Mark, we might jump back to um to keep going with your golf career before we go into um kind of maybe how you can now help golfers. We didn't quite get to how you transitioned from amateur to the professional ranks sort of how you made that decision and basically what happened with your pro career like where you went for q schools where you went trying to play and and things like that sure yeah so um i was doing my phd in ucd at the time i was on the irish team i would have been playing a lot of uh a lot of international level golf traveling around quite a bit during the season you know over the course of the summer um kind of April through to September. And as I was coming to the end of my PhD, I was thinking about what I should do next. And I had played a lot of high level amateur golf and I just was very, very curious as to, you know, could I challenge myself to play pro golf or what would that look like? Um, I was probably a little bit, not, I, w I won't say too old, but I'd probably been in college for a bit too long I had done a, I, I had done a, a degree I had started a master's I had done a PhD um, and then I was starting into a postdoc so a one-year postdoc there had had come up but about I was quite lucky in so far as a couple of months into that that the guy who had the funding for the postdoc he, he relocated to another university so that for me was just the trigger then I was like right let's do this um, so I turned pro and uh I was lucky enough. I had some sponsors. 2004 or five. This was 2006. Okay. Yeah. 2006. Yeah. So I won the East in 2004. Would have been the uh, would have won the Order Merit that year. So you know, Player of the Year or top two, and I made the Irish team the following year. And then the 2006 was the year I was writing up my PhD. So I was very restricted in terms of being able to play uh, that much. So. At the end of 2006, uh, January 2007, I, I, uh, I turned pro. Uh, I had some funding from the Irish Sports Council. Team Ireland Golf were very supportive at the time. They funded, you know, new up-and-coming pro golfers. And uh, I had some sponsors as well from my home club and things like that. So I had, I had a bit of backing and, you know, I had a bit of comfort to, you know, play and, and, and coach and train and, and do the things I wanted. So I was, I was quite lucky about that so that's that's where I was in 2007 and I suppose I would have played a year 2007 I would have played mini tour golf so uh, I would have gone to Q school in 2006 but uh, I handed in my um, I handed in my PhD in November in 2006 and I would have gone to tour school in September uh, right in the middle of my write-up so it wasn't ideal but I kind of used it just as a what's this all about? What's it like? You know, can I compete here? What are these guys like? I, I didn't, I can't remember how, what I shot, but I, I didn't embarrass myself, but uh, I just knew that I would, you know, if I was to go there the following year, it, it's nice to get that experience the year before. So did you, do you remember if you kind of got a wake up call to how good these guys were or did you more feel, oh, I can, I can hang with this, with this standard? Um, I felt I could hang with the standard, but um, you know, when you play, elite amateur golf I suppose there might be 
20 guys in the field who who would be your main competitors who you think are going to challenge that week. And I think that the surprising thing with pro golf was that there might be 155 guys teeing it up that week and there might be over 100 easy who could who are all shooting good scores who are you know easily well able to compete there's not very much separating them yeah no there was a huge amount of depth there so if, if you didn't play great you really you know you really saw that difference straight away but they weren't they weren't shooting the lights out either so you didn't you didn't ever feel like you were that far away that just that there was a hell of a lot of really yeah. good players in the same place so that's that's what i saw and um so I suppose 2007 then I turned pro and a lot of Irish guys at the time would have gone to the UK and they would have played the Euro Pro Tour, which is a mini tour there. And it's it's close to home. They had a few events in Ireland um, and a lot of events in the UK. But I just, I didn't fancy that. I just thought it was a bit too, I don't know. There was a lot of Irish guys going there. So I decided I wanted to go to mainland Europe and uh, there was a good mini tour there called the EPD Tour. It was run by the PGA of Germany. And um, I, I, I played that and there was two or three other Irish guys who would have went there, but it was kind of the route less traveled by, I suppose, in some ways. But I wanted that I wanted that kind of tour experience where you're on the road, yeah. you're, you're flying, you're going to, you know, Munich one day, Hungary the next, um, that kind of a thing. So I played, I played EPD tour that year and my first year, I think I made every cut. Um, Barely, you know, the ceiling was just make the cut, see how you do this week. So I made the cut. I think I made every cut. I might have missed one towards the end. Um, and I just thought, you know, I definitely had the game to, to to play there. But it's a mini tour, so you're trying to get off it as quick as you're getting on it. So um, I would have went to tour school then at the end of 2007. I uh, would have got through the, the first stage. Um, I flew to Spain. I think I got sick that year. Was it the next year? I can't remember. But I got through the first couple of stages of tour school a couple of times but came up short um at that final stage um uh, yeah sorry got no go ahead yeah so so i would have played epd tour 2007 and then for 2008 based on doing decent at tour at tour school i would have had a category on the challenge tour which is the uh, the equivalent of the one below the main tour here so i would have played a mixture of um challenge tour and epd tour i would have done that for the next uh two to three seasons uh because i got through a couple of stages of tour school for the next couple of years but didn't quite get out the far side of it i played a couple of european tour events i played the irish open i played the uh, the klm open um, and a few others i was being managed by a uh, a german sports management group so they would have kind of arranged for me to to, to get into some events and things like that so it was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's it's tough. It's a real wake up call. That's why the collegiate golf in the states thing was probably a better training ground because you know I went from having a, a relatively busy season in amateur golf of you know April through to September every week or every other week to you know forty weeks of the year on the road. You know, booking your own flights, booking your yeah. own hotel rooms, booking your rental cars. Uh, if you miss the cut, you're trying to get out of there quicker than what you've booked. And, you know, it was just a, a whole different level of kind of logistics that kind of kicks in there, you know. And even travel-wise, I didn't – I wasn't prepared for the kind of long season feel to it. You know, it's you're almost like a an actor trying to break through. You're, you're, every, the next event is the most important event. It's the big one. You know, you might do well that week. So you're always – you're kind of burning yourself out a little bit those first couple of seasons anyway i was just playing as much as i could rather than kind of trying to peak for for various times of the year you know was there a lot of financial stress during those years mark or were you you know kind of adequately supported by you know the the sponsors so that that wasn't a huge issue or yeah no it wasn't a huge issue i was lucky uh this was the celtic tiger era you'll be familiar with that one mike from uh, a while ago there was plenty of people with um plenty of money and there was there was good sponsorship uh going around so i was uh very comfortable there you know there was the team ireland golf trust as well they they had uh they would get you invites to challenge tour events they would give you uh sports science supports so you had a kind of a carding scheme here so you could see your you could see your biomechanics person or your coach or your doctor or whatever um and you had a certain amount of those 
you know, visits or sessions per yeah. year. So kind of that, 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 that all really helped as well. So there wasn't, there wasn't much financial issues at all there. No, I'm sure towards the end there was, but that's, that's a different story. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure, I'm sure you could see if that had been different though, those kind of few years traveling on that tour might've been a, a different feeling. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, if money was tight, you definitely, you'd be scrimping everywhere you could. Like I wasn't staying in, in five-star hotels or anything like that. I was always on a budget, but, uh, if money was tight, you know, you're, you're paying, I can't remember now, but you're paying a lot of money to even enter these events. So yeah, because they're mini tour events, um, you had to come in the top 20 to even, you know, get your entrance feedback kind of stuff. So you were, it was a very, very performance oriented kind of a place, you know, you had to get the most out of yourself every week. Yeah. And how did you then kind of finally decide that say tour golf wasn't, you know, your, your future, you were going to do something else. How did, how was that decision made? Yeah. So, uh, I suppose I ran out of money in one way, but you know, life, life kicks in in, in the meantime too. So, you know, I had a, a long-term uh, girlfriend, we got married, um, we had a baby on the way as well. So there was all these kind of life, uh, things happening at the same time. So I, I think if, you know, if I was a bit younger, I would, I definitely would have played a few more years of pro golf because I was enjoying it. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was great traveling around. It was great, you know, seeing how good I, I could be or how good I could, how good I could get. But, um, uh, 2010 was the year that I finished up. So it was my fifth season. Um, we had our first child was born that year in April. So it was really tough being away from, from her, from the two. I was just going to ask, did your mm. girlfriend travel with you while you were doing all these weeks on tour in Europe or how did that kind of work? Um, yeah, so she would have come to some of the better events or the, the nicer, nicer cities. Events. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So she came to Kenya and came to South Africa a couple of times and uh, came to the States as well. Um, but not too much. I had a, my cousin used to caddy for me a little bit as well. So he might come to some of the, the events closer to home and, and do a bit for me there as well. But um, no, you were, you were on your own with a bunch of, bunch of other lads most, most of the time. Yeah. yeah. But, oh, that's great. yeah so, so yeah, so 2010 was, it was tough being away that year and I suppose I had, you know, that the funding support was starting to diminish or drop off a bit because you weren't kicking on, you hadn't got your tour card. Um, so there was, there was more of a budget issue. Um, the previous year or two, I had started to um, supplement my income. So I had started to teach uh, some psychology classes in, a, in, in college in, uh, in Dublin. So I had started doing that kind of winter winter teaching and I was lucky enough to get some to get some experience there because I did like I did like the idea of academia like I, I wasn't I wasn't always set to play pro golf it was almost like you know I don't want to say I'm bored I want to try it but it was an itch I had to scratch yeah let's see how good like, I can be basically yeah like when I was 15 I wasn't thinking and I was a good up-and-coming golfer I wasn't thinking pro at all I was thinking lovely amateur career here keep playing you know, that, that was, that was the, that was the goal for me. It was never to play pro golf, but the pro golf thing was the itch I had to scratch really rather than the, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm destined for this. This is, you know, if I was, I would have turned pro a lot younger. I would have got my degree and turned pro and given it maybe 10 years or eight years or something like that, you know? Yeah. No, that's really, really interesting. Like, I think that sets us up nicely for some of the work you do now, really. Um, like probably a, a quite unique scenario in that you have so much competitive golf experience at very at very high levels and you are now the senior lecturer for the masters in sport exercise and performance psychology at ul your bio says that your primary interests are exploring the neurocognitive characteristics of expertise in skill performance what is that and uh, <laughs> and, and how can it help golfers uh, yeah, so my PhD uh, was looking at slope perception in golfers. So it was looking at how golfers read greens, basically. And um, I was really interested in this because there's always a debate, um, I think, in science and in coaching and in performance, whether something is an art or something is a skill that can be taught and, and learned and, and so on. And then there's the big debate in expertise 
literature, which is, you know, are you born with these characteristics or do you develop them through, you know, hard work? So broadly speaking, that, that was kind of what drove me, what really interested me. And Professor Aidan Warren was, was kind of a big driver behind that kind of interest as well. So I, I wanted to look at golfers in my PhD, uh, tour pros through to elite amateurs, through to club golfers. I wanted to look at those three levels of, of skilled golfer or experts. And I wanted to see, can we find differences in how they read greens? Because people say you either have the skill or you don't. You're either a good green reader or you're a poor green reader. And um, we we were using um, eye tracking to measure kind of gaze of golfers. So we were looking at we could we could kind of measure or tell how much cognitive processing they were doing as they were reading the green. Cognitive processing just being how much brain activity they were engaged in while they were trying to 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 execute their their put or decide where they were going to aim and then later execute their put so that was kind of that was the driver that's a kind of a neurocognitive characteristic right it's um you 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 gaze upon a certain location you make a decision about where you're going to aim and then you kind of program in that motor pattern about what you're going to do in, in a minute uh, in a minute's time when you go up to actually execute your put so I suppose I was able to show that there's kind of expertise differences between golfers in, in terms of how they read greens and golfers tend to have a really efficient gaze pattern. They make decisions quicker. Um, they process information more deeply and so on. So this was the kind of driver behind the, the expertise differences. But then more broadly speaking, you know, sports psychology is about helping people be aware of themselves in certain situations and the decisions they make and how they think and how their thinking can impact on their behaviors and how they feel or their emotions. So it's this cycle of, of a pattern, you know, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors interacting with each other. So it's trying to make golfers aware of that. So, you know, on one side was the research, which was really uh, kind of nerdy, you know, looking at golfers and how they read greens. And then the other side of it was, you know, can we, can I just help people, know themselves better to be better, you know, at golf or at whatever other performance it is they're trying to master. Yeah, that's excellent. I have two questions about your PhD. Did you find kind of any, say, practical things from the differences between the skill levels in terms of their slope perception? Um. Yeah, so we looked at the gaze patterns of the golfers. So basically, uh, professional golfers and elite level golfers, so scratch golfers are better. They had a they had different gaze patterns. So they had different their eyes moved around the scene differently than club level golfers. Our average our, our lowest level of golfer in this study was their average handicap was eight. So they were pretty skilled golfers still. Um, but basically, pro golfers had a very uh, efficient gaze strategy. They looked to, let's say, two to three spots around the hole or around the break point, and they processed that information really deeply. So they might look at one spot and gaze upon that for up to a second at a time, whereas the lesser skilled golfers tended to have, uh, you know, three, four, five times as many looks and process that information at a much lower level. So they they weren't... They weren't processing the information as deeply and they were making, you know, worse decisions about where the break was based upon not processing it efficiently. Enough. And when they're, say, taking in all this uh, information about the green slope, Mark, did you have to standardize where they stood to do this? Or were they free to, say, walk around the green however they wanted? Or is this when they're over the ball? Or, or how was that, say, you know, kind of, I suppose, measured or calibrated? Yeah, so it's a it's a big challenge. So experimental control in any kind of research is a big challenge. So what we did was uh, I spent a year learning. Uh, you'll you'll laugh at this one, now, Mike. I spent a year learning 3D Studio Max, which is a, a a modeling software basically. So I built a virtual golf green based off of the the 15th green in Stackstown, my home club, and I, I modeled that green, which has just a regular green with some slopes on it. I modeled that in a virtual environment, and, and you then I every pot on that green. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, so I modeled that in a, in a, on a computer. And then um, what, what I did was we, we kind of surveyed or we interviewed elite golfers to find out their green reading pattern, you know, where they typically went. So behind the ball, behind the hole, kneeling down, standing up from the side, etc. So we included all of those locations. So they had, you know, two 
viewpoints. One was standing and one was kneeling behind the ball. One was standing and kneeling behind the hole. And then there was halfway around uh, from the side. So that anyone who came in to be tested in the, in the it was an eye tracking lab in, in UCD. Um, they took this tour of the green, but they could decide the locations they wanted to to look from based upon what they would normally do themselves. Okay, yeah, that's no, that's great. That makes kind of it easier to understand how you're, you know, measuring what they're what they're looking at, basically how they make yeah, their yeah. their different cases. Like, this was this was back in two thousand and four, two thousand and five. I think nowadays there's eye tracking glasses that people can wear outside, but they're still pretty hard to to get good data off because um, the glasses they they put they're they based they're based off corneal reflection in your eye. So. If there's bright lights in the environment, it'll throw off some of the, the eye tracking and it'll kind of mess okay. up. We'd, but it's a, it's a little easier to do nowadays, but still it's a bit of a challenge from an experimental point of view. Of course. The second question I had then, just when you brought up slope perception in golfers, was um, have you learned or investigated the aim point system? Uh, yeah, so I've had... Um, yeah, I have, yeah. What, what would you like me to say about it? I'd like to hear, I'd like to get your thoughts on it. It sounds like you have some. Um, yeah, I suppose it's kind of a, it's an interesting system and there's, um, there's a couple of coaches here in Ireland who, who would be big advocates of Aimpoint and I've had some nice chats with them and, and debates and so on, but I suppose ultimately it's a bit gimmicky. I think, um, there's not much experimental evidence to support, you know, using your feet to judge the slope of something standing over it and using your fingers and, you know, the kind of Adam Scott yeah. traditionally, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's very much, it's very much placebo. It's, it's not, it's, I don't see the evidence for how effective it can be and using your feet to judge, uh, your balance, is, is is a very tricky thing because I mean our whole our whole brain tries to adapt for any kind of differences in gait and balance. So I don't think you could stand on a bit of a slope and just decide that yeah okay it must be a couple of degrees here. This is what I'm going to do. So it's do you, uh, it's it's yeah. a useful initiative because it's good for or it's a good it's a good way to shine a light on trying to be better at reading greens, but I. Uh, ultimately i don't think it works as intended okay yeah that's that's really interesting because kind of it's it's very commonly you know lauded as something that you know is is i suppose something that people need to learn and it's becoming so popular on tour like i'm definitely not an expert in aim point or or in green reading by any means but um i suppose my my rebuttal to that or kind of my, my further questioning would be that, and again, if it's placebo, maybe so, but, but that can be okay too. Like there does seem to be, you know, high level players who have found benefits from it compared to what they were maybe doing before. Do you think the, the yeah. kind of main, the main thing that I would be sort of interested in with Aimpoint is I, I have a reasonably hard time with the, concept of like the the fingers and the aiming and that sort of mm. thing too what yeah. i'm sort of more interested in is using your feet to try and get a you know perception of the slope as opposed to just relying on your eyes do you think that with say a lot of practice and training people can get very good at um essentially measuring slope with their feet and that can help them or no. do you reckon it's just something has too much no, no, I, I, uh, I would be super skeptical of that, and I'd love to actually test it. I'd love to do a study on it at some point, um, you know, here, here in the University of Limerick. But uh, I don't think you can stand, you know, on your carpet there and and notice that it's one or two degrees of a slant in the room. I don't, I just don't think you can, you can feel that from a proprioceptive point of view, from a balance point of view, um, and it's the same on a golf green and where you're standing. Is not where the ball is going to be. As the ball slows down, gravity kicks in. So how do you judge gravity taking? Or, yeah. yeah, exactly. And how, how do you judge gravity having the most effect? You know, there's three probably there's three routes into the into the hole. There's the slower line, there's the medium pace, and there's the faster pace. And how do you how do you judge the how do you judge where gravity starts to have the most impact? And and would standing on that spot 
tell you what the slope is for that if you had to close your eyes and think am i you know two degrees this way or two degrees that way because golf greens the breaks on the golf greens are very subtle unless you're in augusta or somewhere that has some really big slopes you are just not going to feel them and if you close your eyes you you might feel something but i i just don't think i just don't i can't see how you would get good at not using your eyes as you should and, and 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 trusting your feet to tell you something about what the slope is at that place i think uh there's a reason our vision is is dominant and helps us navigate our environment and is you know 50 percent of our brain our cortex is dedicated to vision typically or up to 50 percent. so i that's, think we should use i think we should use that yeah that's fascinating i'm going to quiz you a little bit more on maybe how we should go about reading greens if that's okay just before we finish up and i won't keep you too much longer we're we're nearly coming up on an hour but something i wanted to uh to kind of bring up and ask if you've seen it based on that is um there's a video from i don't know maybe maybe three or six months ago i can't remember exactly when but it's victor hovland warming up before uh, one of the european tour events he went over to play and he's literally on the green with the spirit level. And he's trying to match his perception of slope with his feet to what the spirit level is saying in terms of degrees of slope and trying to get that calibrated so that when he's reading putts, he's literally being able to think, okay, this is 2% or 3% or 1%. And this is the slope that I'm dealing with. That's kind of where I was you know, going with the, do you think players can get very good at calibrating what a slope actually is versus what it actually feels and and using that but you think there's probably you know just too many other things that can happen and there's there's too many other variables for that to be very useful yeah there's there's i think there's too much noise in the system there i think it's great that people are trying these things out but we have to remember golfers are suckers they will try anything even you know harrington has 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 used some really bizarre stuff down the years. There's, you know, golfers will try anything to get better. So there's all sorts of gadgets out there which have zero basis in science or zero evidence behind their efficacy, and that they'll try them. Everyone will try them because, you know, it's it's a race to it's a race to improve by even you know one stroke around if they can get one stroke around better. Oh, what happens there. is, yeah, you know, what happens is you get you get a lot of retrospective bias don't you someone wins next this week or last week uh, and says geez i just i've gone to this aim point guy and it, my putting is just unbelievable this week and everyone attributes you know their success then to you know aim point or traditionally it might be that i went to a sports psychologist last week dr bob or dr phil or dr whoever and you know they really helped me and then it's like okay johnny won because he went to a sports psychologist but like no good sports psychologist will have will do anything unbelievably effective to, to make someone go from uh, missing cuts to winning in, in a week. You know, that's just all, uh, you know, just placebo or a little boost in confidence. If, and it's if just, the person had had the same conversation with their dad or their friend, it may have had the same effect. They just basically got things off their chest or they had a new perspective or whatever. Exactly, exactly. And we like to we like to attribute reasons to success. We like to kind of compartmentalize that. It's because I, you know, I wore my lucky socks today. It's because I changed manufacturers this week. It's because I, I put a new driver in the bag. It's because but it's it's a lot more complicated than that. I think, you know, good psychology is about being aware of all the factors that might lead into how successful you've been that week or unsuccessful that week and what might need to happen as a result of that. Yeah, no, that's excellent. I have two more questions, Mark, if that's okay. Sure, yeah, and I will course. let you go. Um, I'm assuming that there's many ways to do this and it, it, it can't just be a simple, say, set of steps. But what do you think are, what do you think is a useful strategy for most players trying to get better at reading greens? Like where, where do people go wrong and, and what can they start doing, you know, this weekend to try and, to try and read greens better? Yeah, for, for, for green reading, um, it's an interesting one because I, I think it's about it's about noticing um, the speed of the green versus the speed that you're putting on the ball. So like the force you're applying to the ball. So if you're trying to become a good green reader, I think you're trying to, like I said earlier, you're trying to 
you're trying to hold the same putt, but with three different speeds on it. You know, the one that drops in and breaks a lot at the end, the one that goes in a medium pace and breaks a little bit in between, and the the firmer putt, which doesn't have, you've taken a lot of the break out of the putt. And then I think you'll you'll get familiar with what suits you as a player. You know, are you that player that takes the break out of it a little bit more and hits a nice, firm, decisive putt? Or are you the guy that, you know, takes the big break and tries to, you know, drop it in the, the pro side of the of the cup, as they say? Um, and knowing that you're the guy who likes to be the firm putter, then that can make you very decisive when you get on the course then in deciding where you're going to put because, you know, green reading is like club selection. It's just about avoiding doubt or le- not letting doubt creep in in terms of what it is you're trying to do and just learn from it. You know, like if you're getting out there and you're noticing patterns of where you're missing your putts, then maybe you're under reading or over reading. You know, can we notice that? Does anyone, you know, anywhere have a a reflection of their round and think, God, I missed I missed six twenty footers low. I, I, my green reading, I, I'm under, I'm under reading most of my putts. So my my goal for the next day is, if I'm in any doubt, I'm going to overread this and I'm going to accept missing it high, if if that's the case. So it's almost like a a trial and error thing, but it's about noticing, you know, how that putting is going. Is it a speed issue or is it a read issue? And then having a, a proactive plan for what you should do next. And I think a lot of a lot of better golfers will have that they'll have their little chart as they're going through their round or their caddy might have if they're lucky enough to have a caddy and they'll be noticing you know uh where their misses are not just for putting or reading but where their misses are all, all round. so you then go back to your coach if it's a putting coach or if it's your swing coach and it's like look i'm when i'm under pressure i'm i'm missing low and i'm i'm, I'm under reading so like i need a strategy that when i'm under pressure when i'm a, feeling like i'm under pressure i now need to uh give myself that extra couple of inches of of break to build that into my plan so you know i've been here before i don't quite hit it as hard as i want because i'm under pressure and i'm a little tighter a little more anxious a little more whatever i need to give this a little bit more and just accept that I might miss it high and I'll be okay with that because then I'll just tweak it. I'll go a little less for the same next type of push. But it is trial and error. It is kind of systematically focusing on what it is you're doing. You know, I, I guess like even if you think about your last round. Yeah. So awareness is the big part. Like that's, that's the good sports psychology. That's the good golf psychology side of it. You know, like if you think back, I know you chart your rounds or have done religiously for the last while, but do you notice where you miss to that extent up? though i i yeah. don't track that i i know it's something that can be done and probably you know should be done but it's it's not yeah. part of the tracking that i do yeah it, so, it might so, it, it might be now though <laughs> yeah so so if you're not tracking it you know how do you expect to get better at it you know it's kind of it's kind of luck or it's it's something else that's helping it along but it's like with uh it's like with good you know, good preparation is about ticking all the boxes, right? And and knowing where your misses are, knowing what you do when you're under pressure versus when you feel really good. Um, so that tracking might be useful, even if it's a, you know, medium range putts or, you know, those kind of, you know, the, the really interesting putts from like seven to 15 feet, you know, the ones that you really think you should hold, but you know, statistically you're going to hold maybe half them. And noticing what you're doing on them ones, maybe not for the really big putts because it's all speed for the longer putts, right? But uh, I think I think it's definitely worth tracking. And then you know, then you've got something to bring to your putting coach, or you've got something to bring to the putting green the next day you're on it, uh, and getting those sloping putts and getting the you know that interaction of speed with read. Yeah, no, that's superb. Really, really good info there on on putting. I'm I'm definitely going to listen back to that. Um, the last thing that I kind of I think might be a good way to sum up is uh, kind of a phrase or, or three words that you mentioned earlier. And I think it might be almost like a mantra that golfers could use to to start, you know, assessing their own psychology. I think you said thoughts, behaviors, actions is always was that the order you said them? Um, thoughts, feelings and behaviors. Yeah. But the actions thoughts, thoughts. follow. Yeah. 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 So thoughts, feeling, behavior, action. And um, people basically trying to to be aware of those things during a round 
maybe especially when they get into you know situations that are uncomfortable absolutely and and we think about we think about routines you know everyone has their pre-shot routine or their pre-performance routine and most people don't know why they have a routine they just they're just copying the guy next to them on the range or their favorite golfer or something like that but like a good routine should help you just get really center yourself and get yourself ready to execute the shot that you have coming up you know and if it's not doing that if 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 your routine is allowing you to jump ahead with your thinking or to you know start to fear the shot you're you're you have to hit or think about anything other than you know executing the shot then you really need to go back to the drawing board with your routine as well. So like the, the, the pre-shot routine is something that's taken lightly, but should be kind of factored in as another kind of, you know, part of your armor or a part of your armory for golf, because it should help you to get rid of negative thoughts. Think about what it is you're doing, uh, help you to feel comfortable, if not confident or both. And then should help you to kind of execute or go into autopilot then with your swing. Yeah, no, so that's thoughts, feelings, and actions. Yeah, all about. Yeah, no, it. that's that's superb. We'll have to start writing that in our gloves or something. <laughs> um, from from this conversation, Mark, something that I kind of just picked up as a theme going through it is that you um, seem to be like advocating how important it is for people basically to learn about themselves like to to track what what they feel and what their tendencies are so it's a very individual thing because what one golfer you know has circling around in their head or what they feel in their body in a situation is very different to what someone else feels so i'm assuming that like that idea of maybe like journaling or reflecting back on performances and seeing what you can do differently is something that you would say is quite important yeah, very much so. It's a major part of golf anyway, right? You come in after your round and most of the time you can't wait to tell people about all the great shots you hit or all the disastrous shots you hit that ruined your score or whatever it might be. So we can remember all the shots we played in a round very easily. So I don't think it's too I don't think it's too onerous or too difficult to just reflect on it for five or ten minutes. And if you're using some sort of an app or some sort of a, a tracker to jot in some of those those stats. But maybe what you might also want to jot in is where you felt comfortable, where you felt uncomfortable, where you felt anxious, where you felt nervous. What did you do about it? You know, what strategy worked for you when you, you know, hitting hitting the first tee shot with people around, it can be incredi- incredibly anxiety invoking for some people and some people really manage it well and uh, different people and manage people it. Love it. And yeah. some people love it. They grow to love it then. It's like, at the mo- I want more people around now. I want to, you know, show people what I can do. So, you're right insofar as it is a very individual thing. Um, but like with most things, you know, most people are uncomfortable speaking in public, but for a lot of people, that's their job, you know, so they just have to get on with it or find ways to make it work for them because that's how they earn their living or that's a major part of their job. And just like that with golf, you just have to get on with the things you're uncomfortable with and not block them out, you know, not think, God, it'll be fine the next day. It was just a bit crap today. It'll be grand. I'll, I'll just get on with it. It's more like, you know, can I recreate a situation that that puts me in this spot again? And what could I do differently the next time? You know, could it be breathing and centering myself or could it be that kind of who cares attitude, you know, free swing? What is it? Just knowing yourself do you get uptight or do you swing harder? Do you swing softer? Do you doubt yourself? Do you get all technical? Do you get not technical at all? Um, you know, different strokes for different folks, but it's about knowing what you do in that situation and then having a plan for getting yourself out of that. Yeah, I know that's superb. I think that will really help golfers. Do you have, um, is there ways that people can either like work with you or get in touch with you if they want to find out more, Mark? Like I definitely like to, to advertise any services you have available and if if you don't offer like coaching essentially is there any resources that you recommend that people can pick up uh sure yeah no i, I work in an applied setting i work with teams and individuals so uh, most people contact me through my email which is just mark.campbell at ul.ie but if you um yeah just google Dr. Mark Campbell, University of Limerick or something, you'll find my contact details there. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to happy to chat to people, see if I can help them. That's perfect. Mark, thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. I kept you about 15 minutes more than I intended to, but 
it was it was really good stuff. Um, I have I actually have one last thing that I meant to bring up and I forgot. You have five, you have two or three minutes. I do, of course, Mike. No problem. Yeah. Um, it it came back to me as uh, as you were talking about the recentering and things like that. And if this might be a big a big topic, but um, we we can do it another time maybe. Have you looked at it all or done much investigation into meditation for golf performance? Um, I haven't done any research myself or the group that I have here in UL. We haven't done anything on uh, meditation or mindfulness or things like that. But um, I, I lecture on the topic, obviously, around mindfulness and flow and clutch and, and all these various components. And I think there's quite a big debate about the benefits of mindfulness and the benefits of meditation to performance. Um I think if I was to come down on on one side or the other, I'd say it's probably beneficial for performance if done right and if learn if you learn how to meditate properly. But the debate is out there because why would you know centering or or meditating or being mindful of yourself work in a performance setting where you need to be you know in that kind of clutch state making things happen and and you know, producing a performance. So sometimes I think they're at odds with each other and sometimes I think they work. But like the aim point, I think proactively doing something for yourself to help you in a situation tends to give you a benefit, whether it's a, an actual benefit or a perceived benefit, if for want of a better term, might be the case. But it's, yeah. it's, a, big, it's a big hot topic. But I, I definitely don't think, I wouldn't be like, it's the best thing you could ever do. It'll, you know, yeah. change your life. It, it might stop you falling victim or to the mercy of just whatever is going to happen if you don't have something proactive set up, though. Is that kind of what you exactly. think? It's yeah, a coping yeah, exactly. strategy, basically. It's a mechanism. It's a, it's a coping strategy. It's You've done something about something, and you think you're going to benefit from it. So other people chew gum. Other people, you know, crack jokes. Lee Trevino would crack jokes and talk to everyone who was nervous. You know, like it's, it's just a... It's a tool, just like everything else, but I'm not sure I'm not sure the highs of how good it is for performance, maybe for managing yourself day to day or uh, event to event, but I'm not sure how it relates to performance. And I think the jury's out from a research point of view as well, but it's an exciting area. Yeah, that's perfect. I'm, I'm glad I asked that now. Super. Mark, thanks a lot. I really, really appreciate your time. And um yeah, maybe further down the line, you'll have to do a part two, maybe in a year's time or something like that. Sure. Yeah, no, happy to happy to help Mike and uh, best of luck with it.